0: You're listening to Jesus is Everything, the teaching ministry of The Way, Eugene. With that, all of that said, turn to the Gospel according to Mark, chapter 1, page 933, if you're using my Bible, but I bet you you're not. Just a wild guess. Like I said last week, we're going to take a break from the epistles, the pastoral epistles, the letters that Paul would write to the local churches, and we're going to come back and we're going to hear the story of Jesus. And the gospel according to Mark, you'll note that I'm saying that, this is not Mark's good news, it's not his gospel, it's the good news of Jesus Christ according to Mark. Now, there's there's three things I want to accomplish today as we begin our study through this gospel account. The first is this, we're going to discuss today who wrote this gospel and why that's important. And you may say, well it's Mark, his name's attached to it. Yes, but there's sort of a there's sort of some additional information you need to know. So who wrote this gospel and why that's important. Number 2, I want to give you just a brief comparison to the other Gospels. Each one sort of has a unique perspective on the telling of the story of Jesus and his life and ministry. And then thirdly, I want to end with why the message of the Gospel is so effective, number one, in changing people's lives. But number two, I want to share with you why the Gospel of Jesus Christ is so subversive to our culture. And what that means is why does the gospel of Jesus oppose the culture that we live in? Why does it it come up against and butt up against? Why is it not compatible with our culture? So to begin, I want to give you just a little bit of background and information about the gospel according to Mark, who wrote it, and uh, why that's so important. First of all, to know... uh, Mark's Gospel, the Gospel according to Mark, is by all accounts by almost all scholars thought to be the earliest writing of Jesus's life and ministry. It's the earliest accounting of it. And it was most likely written in the early 50s, so 53-54 AD. And here's what that means, and this is why dating of scripture is so very important. Jesus was crucified in 33 AD, according to Roman records, okay? So 33 AD. If Mark writes this accounting of the gospel in 52, 53, 54, that's incredibly important for us because it means that within 20 years or so, someone is already writing down the accounting of what took place. The Jewish culture was an or, had an oral historical tradition, meaning how they recalled what took place in history was by telling stories orally, and, and by passing that information along. And what we have is within twenty years or so, we have living memory of what took place in the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. This is incredibly important historically for us. So what happens in biblical scholarship a lot of times is that in the modern age, a lot of people who want to discredit Christianity and the accounting of Jesus' life and his ministry, they want to date the writing of the New Testament really late they want to see it post 8070. They want to see it into the 90s or even into the second century, the early 100s. And the reason they want to do that is they want to discredit that first hand eyewitness testimony that so many of the people who participated or were eyewitnesses to Jesus's ministry were able to give their testimony and have it written down and recorded. So the early dating of Mark's gospel is incredibly important for us because those who would doubt its truth or its veracity, we have the ability to say, listen, don't you remember what happened 20 years ago? I'm at an age now where I can look back and go, I remember what happened 20 years ago. I remember in vivid detail. We were just telling stories about our first accidents in, in cars and like what it was, you know, what those experiences were. We remember that in vivid t- detail. Why? Cuz it was a big event in our life. It was something that was pretty traumatic or something that at least had a good story attached to it, right? Well, don't you think the Messiah, the one that the Jews have been waiting for for thousands of years, arriving Being crucified and then resurrecting from the grave would be something that people would want to remember? Absolutely. So to have that recorded within 20 years of the death of Jesus, approximately, is an incredibly important point to understand. That said, tuck this away for your own scholarship, your own time of study, or your own debates with anybody who wants to do this. But I believe that the entirety of the New Testament canon, everything that occurs in the New Testament happened before or was written or recorded before A.D. 70. Now, there are other scholars who would argue that, and they would believe that the book of Revelation, uh, the Revelation of John was written somewhere in the ballpark of A.D. 90, after the destruction of the temple. The way that I've studied it and the way I look at it, I think everything in the New Testament was written before A.D. 70. And so just tuck that away, make a note of it. That's for, for Bible geekery, but but I, I believe it's important. The other reasons that that we know pretty confidently that Mark's is the earliest gospel is that both Matthew and Luke's accounting of the gospel story quotes verbatim from Mark and then increases the information. So it's not that Mark took information that Matthew or Luke wrote and sort of dumbed it down, it's that he started at a very basic level of explanation. Mark's is the shortest of the accountings, it's only 16 chapters. But Matthew and Luke took it as source material and built it upon it. Now, when we say it's the gospel according to Mark, that's a bit of a fallacy. It's actually written by someone named John Mark, who appears in Luke's accounting of the Acts of the Apostles, right? He shows up in Acts chapter 12 figures pretty prominently in Acts chapter 13 and Acts chapter 15 after the council of Jerusalem. Now this is important. John Mark was a young man. He was a cousin to Barnabas, who was a companion of the Apostle Paul in his early missionary journeys. But here's what's important about this, and this is why it's important to understand who wrote this gospel accounting. John Mark, as a young man, joined Paul and Barnabas on missionary work. He was a believer. He went out and was a part of them um, doing work, sharing the gospel in various places. But Acts 13 uh, reports that John Mark, at a certain point in the ministry of Paul, when they were coming up against spiritual and demonic offense or or demonic opposition to their ministry, he, he, he somehow shrunk back from the ministry. He left the mission field and went home. And there seems to be an explanation later on in scripture that says that he was somehow weak in his faith at that point or was discouraged that the work of the ministry wasn't going how he thought it should go. And then later on in Acts 15, after the council of Jerusalem sends out uh, Paul and Barnabas with instructions about how to go out continuing to proclaim this good news, Barnabas says, let's take John Mark with us and go out. And Paul says, nope, he shrunk back from our group. We can't trust him right now. And in fact, that caused a split between Barnabas and Paul so much so that they went in opposite directions, both pursuing the work of the mission of the gospel, but they went in different directions. And John Mark went with Barnabas, and Paul took Silas. And they went off and did their their work. But here's the cool thing. You might look at John Mark like that and go, boy, I relate to that. There have been times in my life where I knew that I was supposed to be on mission for Jesus, but I shrunk back. I left the mission field. I didn't fulfill what I was supposed to do as a missionary of Jesus. Here's the thing to understand. Later on, Paul would say, hey, bring John Mark to me because he's profitable for me in the ministry. And we have John Mark's recording of the events of Jesus' life here in the canon of Scripture. What does that mean? It means that God is never done with you. It doesn't matter how many successes you've had in ministry. It doesn't matter how many missed opportunities you've had. It doesn't matter how far you feel like you've walked away from the Lord. God is always working on us. He's always calling us back. He's always desiring us to come back into the fold, if you will. His sheepfold, his children, his people doing the work of ministry. God is never done with us, and he proves the point by showing us that John Mark is useful in the ministry. Now, the last point I want you to understand about John Mark's gospel accounting here, like I said earlier, it's the shortest of the four gospel accounts. It's rougher, a bit punchier. He kind of just gets to the point he doesn't have a smooth narrative style, right? And, and, and he just sort of just says things as they are. But it's interesting to note why that might be. This is not John Mark's accounting of the gospel. This is John Mark's recording of Peter's accounting of the gospel. And so when you think about the character Peter as one of the disciples, you'd go, yeah, I could see him being pretty rough and not being the most eloquent of communicators, And and the fact that John Mark is simply writing down Peter's recollections of what took place in the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ starts to make sense. That's why it's so punchy. That's why the statements are so bold. And, And so it's good for us to understand that this is eyewitness testimony being recorded and presented to us. Now, second point of the day, a brief comparison of the Gospels oftentimes there's the question, why are there four gospel accounts? Why, why do we need Jesus' story told four times? And why in the telling of those gospel accounts are they not identical? Meaning, why does it sometimes seem like there are details that even perhaps contradict each other? And all we have to do is put ourselves in the position of watching an event of some kind and just hearing the different perspectives that people bring to it. We could all watch the Oregon Duck football game as they beat Washington State last night, right? And, and here's the thing. Depending on where you were sitting, were you there at the game physically at Autzen Stadium or were you sitting in your living room, right? There's a real good chance that if you were sitting in your living room and something happened during a TV timeout, you're watching a commercial – but something happened on the football field that someone who was there at Austin Stadium would go, yeah, we saw that actually take place. But the person sitting at home would go, I have no clue what you're talking about. I didn't realize that took place. It still happened, but it's a matter of perspective. And so as we see the four different gospel accountings, there's four different perspectives and four different purposes that God uses each of those authors to present. When you consider John's gospel, the reason that we... Encourage young believers, new believers, to focus on the gospel according to John because John's gospel highlights Jesus as God the Savior. God made flesh, come to forgive people's sins by his death and resurrection. That is just such a beautiful gospel message. That is the good news that Jesus came to die for our sins, raise up from the grave, and promise us eternal life. That's what John's gospel presents to us. Matthew's gospel spends most of its time presenting to us the highlight of Jesus as the fulfillment of Jewish prophecy, the rightful king according to the lineage of David. He's the fulfillment of all the prophecy of the anointed one, the Messiah coming, who would save God's people. It's important to see that from a Jewish perspective. Luke's gospel, the only non-Jewish accounting of the gospel, Luke was Greek. He was also, we're told, a physician. He was a highly educated person. And at the very outset of his gospel, he says that he is attempting to make a detailed accounting of what took place. Not that the other gospels were incorrect or poorly reported, but he wanted to make a strategic, almost legal setting out of the accounting of Jesus' life. And many people think that the reason that Luke, who was also a companion of Paul was writing his gospel account was so that Paul could use uh, legal language and technical language and historical language to defend himself before the Roman government as he was arrested in Rome. And so there's Luke's accounting. And then we have here Mark's accounting, the earliest. And Mark's accounting of the gospel highlights the practical humanity of Jesus' divine ministry. I think this is why this accounting of the gospel has connected to me for most of my life, perhaps more than any of the others. Number one, because like I've said already, it's shorter. It's really punchy. It just kind of gets to the point, and it's very, very direct. But there are only two accountings in the gospel according to Mark that make reference to Jesus being divine, divinity, God. The very beginning we're going to see in just a moment, and then at the end of the story, it, it, it's, it, the statement is made again. Everything in between highlights Jesus' divine ministry as a human being. And this is important to understand. This is the, one of the major issues. This is one of the major heresies that has taken place throughout the history of the church, that Jesus was either just God or just man, not both God and God and man at the same time. That's what makes him unique in all of the world religions, is that he is both divine and human 100%, with no subtraction of either one of those uh, personas. And that's important to understand. And so much of the time, I think, we as Christians, when we think about Jesus, we think, well, yes, of course he did miracles, he's divine, he's God, right? We think, of course he's perfect, he's God, he couldn't sin, But the part that I think oftentimes we forget and must engage with is that he was also 100% human. And Hebrews would tell us that he was tested or tempted in every single situation of life the way that you and I are tempted. So the fact that you and I are tempted with some sort of sin and we go, oh my gosh, how, how do I come back to this place of sinning again and again and again? Understand that Jesus was tempted in the very same ways, had the very same emotions, experienced the very same stimulations temptations, desires to to be disobedient or to rebel against God. He experienced all of those things. And yet Jesus, Scripture tells us, was without sin. He didn't sin. He was obedient even to the point, Scripture says, to the point of death on the cross. And so the accounting of Mark's gospel, the things that Peter has to share about Jesus' life, death, and ministry, boy, it's very earthy. It's very real. It's very human in the sense that as we read it, we should be able to pick up on it and go, wow, Jesus came and took on our experience. And because he went through our experience and was without sin, that should be our desire, to pursue holiness and righteousness and to make sure that our life is geared toward the rejection of sin. Take a look with me at Mark chapter 1. That's the background I want to give you. And now as we begin actually looking at the scripture, I want to show you why the gospel according to Mark and the gospel in general is so effective but also so very subversive in light of our worldly culture that we live in. The beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ the Son of God. Mark chapter 1, verse 1. The beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. There's a primary question that the disciples in that day and age, in in the face of Jesus' ministry, and practically everyone else who encountered Jesus, not practically, exactly, Everyone else who encounters Jesus has to answer a very specific question about Jesus. Keep your finger there in Mark chapter 1 and just turn over a couple pages to Mark chapter 4. And I want you to see this story. We'll get here in in, in our study in several weeks, but I want to lay out... Perhaps, as I often do, sort of the backbone of the entirety of this book that we're studying. Sort of a main point that everything else is sort of going to circle around. Look at Mark chapter 4, verse 35. And let's read this story briefly. Mark four thirty-five says, On that day when evening had come, Jesus said to them, Let us go across to the other side. And leaving the crowd, they took him with them in the boat just as he was. Have you still no faith? And they were filled with great fear and said to one another, and here's the question, verse 41, Mark 4, 41. Who then is this that even the wind and the sea obey him? There's a singular question that every person, when confronted with Jesus, has to answer. And the question is, who is this? Who is this person? Who is this person that is a person and and is human by all accounts, but does things and says things and claims things about himself that has nothing to do with humanity? He who claims to be one with the Father, claims to be God, claims to be divine. This is the question not just for the disciples at that time, not just for those who were hearing and watching Jesus' ministry, but it's the question that you and I have to answer, and it's the question that every person in the history of the world has to answer when confronted with this person, Jesus the Christ. And so I submit to you again the importance of Mark's very first statement in this gospel accounting. Mark chapter one, verse one. The beginning of the gospel, the good news, of Jesus Christ, and here it is these four words, the Son of God. For those of us who are uh, quote unquote churched, those of us who've been around church for a long time, when we hear this statement, it may not seem like that big of a deal. In fact, it's pretty fairly standard language for us. Jesus, the Son of God, we hear it all the time as we read through scripture. We've heard preachers preach about it. It's something that doesn't seem that big of a deal for us. And those of us who are actually more than just church attenders but are (laughs) serious about our faith and can articulate some form of theological truth, like we've studied, we've heard studies, we've, we've tried to understand the depth of who Jesus is by studying the scripture and the accountings of his life and ministry, this statement that Jesus is the Son of God perhaps is the basis of what we consider our evangelical ministry to the unbelieving world, right? So when we go out to share who Jesus is, we say there's this Jesus, he's the savior, he's the son of God. We have good news, his name is Jesus. And the world may look at us and ask the question, okay, why is Jesus good news? And and even if it is good news of some kind, what does that have to do with me? right? The effectiveness of the gospel is that it is so point blank. It's so punchy and in your face. As we've read many times, and I've recommended to you First Corinthians 15, one of those early creeds that Paul writes, and he says this, according to the scriptures, this Jesus, according to the scriptures, lived, died, was buried, and rose from the grave for our sins. It's in our face, guys. The reason that Jesus is important is because he died to forgive our sins. And we who have been in church for so long, we can forget how subversive this is. We can forget how impactful this statement is. For many of us who've been walking with Jesus for a long time, we're always looking for the next thing. We're always going, okay, now that I understand who Jesus is, and now that I understand that it's all about you know, being filled with the Spirit, empowered by the Spirit, love, joy, peace, patience, gentleness, kindness, self-control, all these good things, we've been around church enough that we're like, yeah, but there's got to be something more. There's got to be something more to hold my attention, to give me purpose in life, to somehow, like, what am I supposed to do? Hey, at those moments where we seem to find ourselves almost bored with this message, boy, you guys, that's when we have to come back to the simplicity the point blank nature of this. And listen to what Mark says in, in the very first statement that he makes the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. That statement is so subversive, not just because it's about Jesus in comparison to other religions or spiritual practices, it is. It's ultimately unique. The claim of Jesus being fully God and fully man does not occur in any other religious tradition. You, could just, you can do a survey of world religions and Christianity is entirely unique because of that claim that Jesus is God and man. But it's subversive not only to other world religions or spiritual practices, it's subversive to the entirety of the human experience. And here's what I mean. Jesus Christ, the Son of Man. Mark's claim is that Jesus is the Messiah, the anointed one, the promised one who would reconcile God to his people. That entire concept of a salvation-based religion is subversive because it makes the claim that there is something wrong with you and with me And we can't do anything about it on our own. See, every other world religion, every other spiritual practice or faith system says that you and I have the ability on our own, if we look within ourselves deep enough, if we practice spiritual practices long enough, if we meditate deep enough and far enough, and if we practice good practices enough, you and I can achieve to some level of spiritual enlightenment, goodness, some sort of personally owned salvation of some kind, or at least contentedness with who we are as people. That's what other world religions will tell you. Christianity says you and I are not okay. We need to be saved from something. The Bible defines it and calls it sin. Rebelling against God, doing what is not right in God's sight. We need to be saved from that. And Jesus is the Son of God who was sent to save us Mark makes the statement that Jesus is the son of God there's some historical context that, that we need to know that helps us understand why this is so like countercultural why it's so in opposition to what the world expects at that time in Rome which was the seat of power politically Rome had authorized the crucifixion of Jesus through the local prelate uh, Pontius Pilate But Rome has now had to deal with the fallout of the resurrection claim, which is coalescing. It's bringing together not just this fringe group of revolutionaries out of sort of this podunk, backwater Jewish community in Jerusalem, but there's this claim that this poor, uh, woodworking carpenter teacher, Messiah, is actually being worshipped as God, a title formerly reserved for the Roman emperor. In that day and age, the common practice politically was to go to Rome and to present yourself before the Roman governor, the Roman uh, ruler, Caesar, take a pinch of incense, burn it, and say, Caesar is Lord. This was the practice of the day. The fact that the Christians from the very earliest age said, Jesus is Lord. Lord, is what was so countercultural, so subversive, so in your face that, hey, we're not going to accept the values and systems of this world to control us. We're going to follow Jesus, who's our king, Jesus, who's our master. Guys, we have to make the connection to the modern age. And and while we don't say a certain political figure is Lord or is God why people sure act that way, don't they? They put all their hope, all their trust, all their faith, all their money behind political causes, thinking that if we get the politics of things right, that's what's going to save us. That's what's going to improve our culture, right? Or, 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 they, or they put their value into some sort of idea, concept, philosophically or academically. Education, that's it. If everybody gets the same education, then our culture is going to get saved, then our society will start to operate well. If everybody's equitable, if everybody's the same, then everybody gets to be successful, right? All we have to do is look throughout history and go, no, that's not how that works, actually. Because evil exists, and people desire power because they see that if they put other people under their control, they get all the good stuff, right? This is the evil of the world around us, and the gospel that Jesus is Lord And that his values and his kingdom is actually what's going to govern us as his people. Guys, it flips everything the world says is good and right and true on its head. Which should mean that you and I, in following after Jesus, should not find our value, our joy, our happiness in the things of the world, the way that the world operates. We find our hope, our value, we find our fulfillment, we find our joy in the things that Jesus says his kingdom encompasses. Things like love, things like joy, things like peace. These are the things that we're supposed to be agents of change for, not through political means, not through academic means, not through social means necessarily, but through Jesus being proclaimed Lord of all. Jesus, the Son of God. Mark says in in this one statement, as simple as it may seem, the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God, Mark says in this one statement, no longer are we going to adhere to the values and control of the world. No, Jesus is to be the center of everything we are as human beings. And then as we progress and walk through the accounting of Jesus' life and ministry, according to John Mark, reporting what Peter had to share, it's as if he says, watch, I'll show you. Here's Jesus' life, God in the flesh. God, come down to serve humanity by becoming a human being and experiencing everything that you and I have experienced.